Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We come today to a uh, passage of Scripture that is uh, more profound than we could fully sound out. But it's a passage that's depth has really been missed by many people through the ages. Perhaps the greatest uh, illustration of that is the controversy over one single word. It is uh, the word that Martin Luther inserted into his German Bible when he was translating this passage, or the word that we simply know of as alone. In German, it is align, but In the debates that followed the uh, publication of his German Bible, it became popularized in its Latin rendition, which is the word sola. Luther translated this passage of Scripture with the famous term sola fide. He inserted it into Romans 3.28. In order to make the meaning of the verse, he felt like as clear as possible in the German language, but he readily admitted along the way that there wasn't a specific word in the Greek Bible that represented this. He would tell you it wasn't a word that he found which made him place it here, but it was the overall context. All this launched a really a campaign against Luther in the years following 1522. Luther was vilified for twisting the Bible. His integrity was attacked over and over again. His skill as a translator and a student of Greek was, uh, was constantly under assault. And all the while, those who were assaulting him within the Roman Catholic Church, attacking him most severely, were the very ones who were at the same time using Luther's German translation as their own. This just goaded him to no end. It frustrated him till the end of his days, and many times bringing out what is really best described as fleshly and sinful responses from him. Luther, after the attack, soon sort of reared its head, penned a letter. It's known as the open letter on translating, in which he wrote this. He says, I know very well that in Romans 3, the word solum is not in the Greek or Latin text. The papist did not have to teach me that. It is the fact that the letters S-O-L-A are not there. And these blockheads stare at them like cows at a new gate, while at the same time they do not recognize that it conveys the sense of the text. If the translation be clear and vigorous and German, it's klar and gewaltheit. It belongs there. I want to speak German, not Latin or Greek. And since it was German, I had set out to speak in the translation. He goes on to explain the interpretive context of Romans. He says, so much for translating the nature of the language. However, I was not depending upon or following the nature of the languages alone when I inserted the word solum into Romans 3. The text itself and St. Paul's meaning urgently require and demand it, for in the passage, he, uh, passage he's dealing with the main point of Christian doctrine, namely that we are justified by faith in Christ without any works of the law. Paul excludes all works so completely as to say 
that the works of the law, though it is God's law and word, do not aid us in justification. That unfortunately didn't silence the matter. In all of the subsequent years, it has continued to be a raging thorn in the side of Roman Catholicism. In fact, you can easily find on Roman Catholic apologetic websites today discussions about Martin Luther inventing this doctrine and inserting it into the Scripture. They ignore Luther's own arguments about the context. They never really interact with any of that. They ignore the fact, even beyond that, that numerous Roman Catholic Bible translators before Luther, they themselves inserted the word before Luther ever came along. Men so esteemed, such as St. Thomas Aquinas, who used the word sola fide in Romans 3.28 in his own translation. They ignore all of that, and as I said, ignore the context of Romans 3 especially. But really, it begs the question, was Luther justified? Was he justified in his Bible translating approach? Was he justified in using the word alone in Romans 3.28? Was he justified in saying that this doctrine, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, is, as he would go on to say, the chief article of Christian doctrine? Luther called it the articulus stantis ed candentis ecclesiae, the doctrine or the article on which the church stands or falls. Was he justified to say that this one doctrine, if you lose this one doctrine, you lose the church? You lose the body of Christ and the message of the gospel that goes with it. Well, I believe we'll see today as we come to Romans 3 and the end of the chapter, verse 27 through 31, I believe what we'll see is that Luther was precisely right to insert the word here, as were all the Catholic writers before him. All of this, you may remember, arises out of a section of Scripture where Paul has been giving a a sort of a summary statement, drawing out the implications, laboring to, to undermine the notion that a person can be justified on the basis of works. He's taught the that the doctrine of the Christ, uh, excuse me, of, of, of the cross, that a man is fully justified before God on the the basis of faith, or I should say on the basis of Christ's work through faith. And, and brought about by grace. He's demonstrated over and over again that all mankind, from chapter 1, chapter 2, into chapter 3, all mankind, both unreligious and religious, are fallen, they're sinful, they're guilty, but that God grants us judicial pardon from our guilt. God declares us to be right and just even when we're not. He does all that based solely on the actions of Christ through the cross. And these benefits that Christ brings to us, He brings to everyone who believes, everyone who places their faith in Christ. When we do that, the Scripture tells us that God imputes or He credits our guilt against Christ and He credits His innocence against us. He imputes, in other words, the righteousness of Christ to us. And none of that is based on anything we do. Not even the faith itself is counted 
as having any merit in this process. As S. Lewis Johnson says, faith is not the cause of justification, it is the means of it. It's not ultimately faith that saves, it is Christ that saves through faith, the source being his perfect, vicarious work on Calvary's cross. Faith was neither crucified nor resurrected for you. So it isn't your faith that saves you, it is Christ that saves you, but it is the means of faith by which God has chosen for us to receive, if you will, all of that benefit. And that's essentially what Paul has been teaching in the first three chapters of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 3. And as we come now to these final verses of the chapter, what he's really doing is he's sort of wrapping all of that up and highlighting some of the significant implications of those very truths. And particularly, he gives us in these verses three significant implications of this doctrine of justification by faith alone that really confirm and demonstrate its central role in the doctrine of salvation, its central role in our salvation. Three, what we might say, significant implications of the doctrine of, the justifi- of, doctrine of justification by faith that show its role, as Luther says, as one of the chief articles of the church, if not the chief article. The first one is found for us in verses 27 and 28. It's the implication from this doctrine of justification by faith that all boasting is excluded. All boasting is excluded. He's bringing this up. If you've studied through the book of Romans, you know he's already talked about it. He's bringing it up again here as he did in previous chapters and and he's already outlined that this is a problem, not just, for, not just for Jews, but for pagans. He talked about in the context of pagan society, how they have their own form of, of arrogance. But when he comes here, he has particular focus in the context of Jewish society on their reliance on religious works. They boasted, he said, back in chapter 2, in the fact that they know His will, and they approve what is excellent because they're instructed in the law. They are sure that they're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He says in verse 23 of chapter 2, You boast in the law, and yet you dishonor God by breaking it. Boasting was a problem for Jews. They boasted apparently a lot. At least Paul spoke about it. Jesus spoke about it. Parading themselves around, drawing attention to their works. There's been a massive effort of late to suggest otherwise. There's a movement known as the New Perspective on Paul. D.A. Carson calls it now the dominant view within New Testament studies. this, This movement, at least at the academic level has really taken America and England by storm, and it's called the new perspective on Paul, but really what it is is a new perspective on Judaism. And what they're trying to do, what they're attempting to do, is really redefine first century Judaism to make it out into some kind of humble and unpretentious group of people who clearly understand their need for God's grace and mercy and were actively seeking it. This, this modern movement suggests 
that first century Jews did not trust in their religious works in order to save them. And so, either Paul misunderstood them or we have misunderstood Paul. But that view of Judaism doesn't stack up according to the evidence. It doesn't stack up according to the evidence of first century Judaism, if you just look at their own writings and you do an honest assessment of their own work, and it doesn't stack up with the evidence of the Bible. There were no doubt some humble Jews, there were no doubt some genuine believers, there always have been among God's people, there's always been a remnant among them who who truly walked in humility, who truly exhibited faith in God. There's always been that. But the majority of Jews, like the majority of people in all times and in all places, thought of themselves boastfully. They boasted in the sense that they placed their confidence in their pedigree and in their performance. Paul himself gives his own testimony of living in this world or back in this age jockeying among his colleagues for, for status in terms of religious accomplishment, religious zeal. He says in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul's just saying, look, you know, you have all these other people, they're boasting. I got every reason and I have more than them. I had all the pedigree, I had all the zeal, I had all the works, I had all the stuff. I could boast right along with every one of them. And so it shouldn't surprise us to to understand that Paul brings up boasting here because it was apparently a major issue among the Jews. They boasted, they boasted particularly of their distinctives. Boasting, of course, is common, as I said, to every human being. We are born thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We come into this world assuming the best about ourselves, thinking that we should be the center of attention, assuming that people should love us more, treat us better, deal with us more kindly, act more fairly, and assuming along the way that God Himself respects and honors and adores us. We're born into this world assuming that God would want us. All of those boastful and arrogant thoughts, they gave their own manifestation within Jewish society, particularly in the realm of religious law, in the realm of exclusivity as a people and ascendancy individually. They wanted to be on the top of the heap. Jews thought of themselves, Paul will state it in Romans chapter 9, as Israelites to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, and promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the God over all, blessed forever. So whether it was on a national level, whether it was on an individual level, they boasted, they thought of themselves as really the center of the universe, the center of God's plan. They thought of themselves as, as especially favored by God. And they spoke about themselves, sometimes in the same way. One rabbi wrote in the first century, or, or spoke in the first century, I should say, God 
spoke to the Israelites, I am God over all who enter the world. My name I have associated only with you. I've not called myself the God of the nations of the world, but I have called myself the God of Israel. This is their boast. This is the way they thought of themselves. But Paul says here in Romans chapter 3 that under faith, boasting is excluded. It is, as he says, shut out. Exocleste is the word. It's the word that was used for shutting people outside of a door, shutting people outside of a house, keeping people outside of a walled city and closing the gate on them. They are, it is kicked out, it is kept out, it is shut out. There is absolutely no place of welcome within this gospel for any ounce of boasting. Paul says this doctrine of justification by faith, this sola fide, shuts it out. By what kind of law, he says? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, he's using the word law there in the sense of a governing principle, the governing principle of faith. Boasting is fundamentally shut out by the governing principle of what we call faith. This this is not about really another law. He's not saying that there's some law that forbids you from boasting and so you ultimately end up boasting about the fact that you don't boast, which some people are prone to do, right? Somebody comes along and tells them, you know what, you need to be more humble. Oh, yeah, I have to put it on, you know, dress myself in humility. And really, it's all about them just notching another thing on their belt. It's all about them gaining another accolade. Spurgeon said, pride will talk of humility and prate about being dust and ashes. I've known men talk about their corruption, uh, corruption most marvelously, pretending to be all humility while at the same time they are the proudest wretches that could ever be found this side of the gulf of separation, end quote. We've all met them, right? People like that. Humility becomes just another achievement to them. Paul's saying, look, this isn't some other thing for you to do. This isn't some other way for you to prove that you are somehow more noble, more worthy, or whatever it might be. That's not what this is about. This is excluded not by another law, not by another prohibition, not by another restriction. It is excluded on the very principle of faith. They cannot coexist. Works cannot coexist, therefore boasting cannot coexist with faith. And for that reason, our salvation must be by faith, not just faith, but faith alone, and only faith. It's the nature of faith that it fundamentally excludes all of this stuff, at least faith as Paul construes it. It excludes boasting, not just verbally, but even in your heart. It obliterates all the imaginations and thoughts that you might have of personal achievement, of personal merit, of personal standing. Faith fundamentally takes its focus off of ourselves and off of our achievement and places it completely and wholly on the achievements of Christ. Faith is a way of saying You do nothing. And it's a way of saying that Christ has done everything. 
Faith is a way of saying that all focus is off of you. It's a way way of saying that you take no credit for anything that you receive from God or any way that God sees you. It's a way of saying that all credit whatsoever is excluded. This is why... Paul says that if you understand what he's just written about faith, if you understand this principle of faith, this law of faith, all boasting is excluded. And that's why he gives the explanation that he gives in verse 28, sort of the restatement, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or as Luther would say, by faith alone apart from works of the law. This is what Paul has said over and over again in these first three chapters. Works of the law are useless in presenting you to God. They, uh, if you present even one of them, if you feel like you're going to stand on even one of them, if you introduce even one point of achievement, then suddenly your entire salvation depends on that one point. It's like we often say, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? And if you have an entire chain of salvation built on the work of Christ, and then you introduce even one link of it, which is dependent on your effort, on your standing, on your righteousness, on your achievement, or whatever it might be, if you introduce even one single link in that chain, then the entire work of Christ is subordinated to your effort. You break your link, the whole chain is broken. As Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, because if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness came in any way by what you do, if God thought of you more today than He did yesterday because you woke up this morning and had a quiet time, if God thinks of you less tomorrow because you didn't have a quiet time, if God thinks of you more or less based on how you, how you speak or how you act or any of those things, if anything in your mind is there establishing your standing before God other than Christ. And you have made His whole crucifixion useless. Later in Galatians, he tells the Galatians, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision He's obligated to keep the whole law. He says, look, you introduce just one link. You introduce just one thing into your thinking, into your theology, into your doctrine of salvation. One thing by which God is going to recognize your merit, whether it is circumcision or whatever religious duty you want to put there. You introduce one thing and boom, you are obligated to keep all of it. You now stand completely on your works. One concept of personal achievement or one concept of personal failure that enters into the equation. Because once it depends on you, it all depends on you. And so the principle of faith, the law of faith, Paul says, it fundamentally excludes boasting. It fundamentally is contrary to it. It is excluded Or another way to say it, boasting 
which is self-announcing, replaced by faith, which is self-renouncing. Jesus made the point that the beginning of faith, the, 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 the entryway into heaven, begins by the confession of your utter spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who have nothing spiritually. Nothing spiritually. Because they're the ones who enter. And so the implications of this gospel, this profound implication of of faith, of sola fide, as Paul has presented it, is that praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activity of believers. Praising and not boasting ought to be our normal and continual stance. All boasting is excluded. The second implication from this doctrine of justification by faith alone is found in the next couple of verses, 29 and 30, and it is the fact that all distinctions are abolished. Not just uh, the boasting that's done away with, but these distinctions that the Jews sometimes held on to. And Paul confronts it with what we might call a, a simple Sunday school question, one which every Jew would instinctively know the answer to because it was, it was central to their common confession. This is the kind of things that they repeated to themselves every day. Uh, he says, is God the God of the Jews only or is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Every Jew, like every Sunday school kid, would know the correct answer to that. God is the God of everyone, right? The central confession of of Jewish society, both then and now, is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This above everything else they knew from childhood, they repeated all the time. It's a quotation from, from Deuteronomy 6.4. It was the principle of monotheism, the unity of God, which was basic to their, to their identity, basic to their religion, and especially in a world of polytheism in those days, it set them apart from almost everyone. The problem is, and from a practical standpoint, the Jews didn't really think that way. They didn't make room for the fact that the God whom they proclaimed is also the God of the Gentiles. They gladly proclaimed this central confession, but really, in the end, never really listened to it. God is one. The reality of the oneness of God They didn't allow it to sink into their thinking. They didn't allow it to permeate their theology. Because if God is one and there is no other, then He is the same God, no matter who He relates to, whether Jews or Gentiles. If He's ever eager, in other words, to manifest Himself as gracious to the Jews, then if if He's ever eager to have them worship Him then he would be equally eager to have the Gentiles worship him, and he would be equally eager to be gracious to them. Just remember, this is the dilemma of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? This is what he wrestled with. He had great theology. Jonah's theology was spot on, but it bothered him 
the reality of what he understood from Scripture because he understood when God called him to go preach to the Ninevites, he understood exactly what was going to go on. These were the, the, the ancient version, you might say, of the Islamic State. These were the ruthless, these were the cruel, the brutal, the merciless people of the day. And Jonah's dilemma was that he knew God, he understood God, he knew that if God had been gracious to Israel, he would be gracious to Nineveh. And because this struggle in his heart with the bitterness against particularly the Ninevites who had slaughtered so many of his own people, he, he, he struggled with this idea. He didn't want to go and preach to them, and so what did he do? He fled in the opposite direction. He took off for a faraway city called Nineveh on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Until God captured him and delivered him by the belly of a whale to the shores of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, so that he would preach the message he'd been called to. He did that, Jonah 3 tells us, and sure enough, they repented. They repented. And we read in Jonah 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I, this what I, what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, I knew this about you. I knew that you were the one God over all people and that you would be gracious to them just like you've been gracious to us. See, Jonah understood this. He understood what Paul's getting at. He may have resisted the Lord, but he understood this oneness. But the typical Jew in Paul's day, even if they understood all of these concepts theologically, they wouldn't allow it to affect their worldview. In their world, God was interested only in them. And so they developed a sort of elitism when it came to their understanding of God and His salvation They came to believe that it was only for them. They came to believe that God only ever acted in their favor. That God would never show graciousness like He did to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, who, by the way, didn't have the law of God, didn't follow ceremonial laws, had no temple, had none of those things, and yet God, apart from any work of the law, demonstrated His kindness. In fact, they came to believe that the reason God had given them the Old Testament to begin with was actually... To protect them from the Gentile world. They started to actually view the Old Testament, to view the Mosaic law as some sort of dividing wall. It was a a barrier, it was a dividing wall that was intended, they thought, to keep them separated from having any contact with the world around them. They completely lost sight of the truth that was given to them from the very foundations of their nation, the truth that was given to them in the Abrahamic covenant, that through Israel, through them, God intended to be a blessing to all peoples. The law, in other words, was never intended to nullify that. In fact, it was intended at least partially to ensure that as they carried out the mission among the peoples, that they would remain faithful to the message. But Israel lost all of that. And they began to act as though if the Gentiles were to be saved, 
they would either need to become Jewish or they would have to find their own God to do it. It's not as if they believed other gods really existed, but this is the way they acted. The fact that God had given them the law seemed to validate in their minds, in their thinking, that God was only interested in them. They began to look at this law as a means of salvation. If they kept it, they believed that they would somehow earn God's favor. And so they constructed a system where Gentiles really had no means of salvation. Now understand, this was not God's plan. That's not why God gave the law. That was never His intent. That's not His design. He never told them that. He never told them that they will keep the law and they will be saved. In fact, He told them very clearly when He gave them the law, yeah, if you did this, you'd be blessed, but you won't. In fact, you'll fail miserably. And you'll need a circumcised heart, he says in Deuteronomy 30, because you can't do this. But they constructed a system where this law was given to them and no law was given to the Gentiles, and, and meaning that God then had two separate ways of dealing with people. They completely lost sight of the God of Jonah, who could act graciously toward the Ninevites even apart from the law. The law then made them elite. It made them exclusive. It made them the limited and privileged people. And they formed a prejudice against people outside of their camp. And so Paul's really confronting the hypocrisy of all this. And he tells them here in verse 25, 29, excuse me, yes. Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will or He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. In other words, this principle of sola fide brings you back to the reality that the God who saves you, saves you by grace, and He's interested in saving others by grace. He operates in the same way for all people. He's the God of all people. It abolishes all this elitism because everyone who comes to God comes on the same basis as one who has, as he says back in verse 23, sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And everyone comes on the same basis of need. Everyone receives the same provision of grace. Which really brings us to our final implication from this doctrine of justification by faith is found in verse 31. And that is that it is really this truth which upholds all of the law. All of the law is upheld this way. All of the law is upheld this way. And every, in other words, every other system that men had ever or have ever constructed if it relates to the law of God, it has to denigrate the law. It has to bring the law down. It actually has to lower the standards in order to make the law something less than it was in its perfect and complete and whole and intact way. And so you've always had people, whether it was the Jews 
who wanted to so overqualify the law so that they could break it down into manageable bites, or whether it is people who want to dismiss part of the law so that they can pick and choose what parts they can fulfill. Whatever it is, there's always been a system which denigrates some part of the law. But Paul says this is the only one that upholds all of it. And so he anticipates those Jews particularly who would have thought about the law as some system of salvation and maybe Paul's trying to undermine it or whatever it might be. He anticipates all that and he asks in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. We uphold it. We establish the law. You say, well, in what way? In what way do you establish the law? It's very common, particularly among Reformed commentators, to launch into this verse, ignorant or intentionally dismissing the context, and want to make Paul out to be defending some sort of modern mosaic code. In other words, what they imagine Paul is saying here is that he's trying now, having set aside the law as any means of righteousness, to then bring it back to the forefront and present it as some means of compliance or some means of sanctification. Well, the problem with that is that nothing in the context is speaking about sanctification. Everything that Paul has said up to this point, which... He's pointing back to, in this verse, everything he said in his argument thus far isn't about how the law is to sanctify you. It's all about how the law condemns you. It's all about how the law brings penalty. It brings punishment. And so when Paul says we uphold or we establish the law or whatever it might be, What he's saying is, we're not presenting the law to you now as some code of compliance. What we're presenting to you is the law the way it was originally intended, which is to inflict punishment. The law was given, as Galatians says, as a tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was given in order to make our sin known. It was given, as Paul says in Galatians 3, to shut us up in captivity which every other system would not allow it to do. In other words, this isn't some supporting principle that some portions of the law ought to be, you know, uh, picked and chosen out of the pages of Numbers or Leviticus and applied somehow to your life. That's completely foreign to the context. Paul He'll eventually get to the issue of a Christian's relationship to the law, but he won't get there until chapter 6. That's an argument for later. But within the present context, what Paul is saying when he says we establish the law, his point is that as he's presented it thus far in Romans, is that the law is upheld in the sense that its holy demands are fully satisfied. Only this way. In an infinite way. He said earlier in the context, back in chapter 3, that, that God had previously passed over sin. You remember that? He speaks about it in, in verse uh, 25. That this 
cross of Christ, this redemption that was put forward in the propitiation of Jesus' blood, was a demonstration of God's righteousness because in His righteousness, because of His divine forbearance, He previously passed over sins. You know what He's saying there? He's saying that it, it appeared at times that God violated His own law. It appeared at times as if God set aside his law. And Paul said, no, that's not what happened. He temporarily passed over in patience and forbearance. But there came a time for reckoning, and that reckoning took place at, Christ, at the cross of Christ. And so it is by that reckoning, it is by that crucifixion, and only by that crucifixion, that the entire law is upheld. All of this establishes the law, all of this upholds the law in the sense that sin only by this method, only by this way, receives its full penalty and demand. In other words, this is the only thing that's, that balances the scales of God's justice according to His law. William Newell gives this illustration from Numbers 15.33 about a man in the wilderness who in Numbers 15 was found gathering sticks to build a fire on the Sabbath day. And the law had said, you shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations on the day of Sabbath. How then was the law established? How was the law upheld at that particular point in time? Not by reminding all people of the need not to gather sticks, God told Israel, God told Moses to find him. And the scripture says they found him and brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. And they put him in a ward because it had not been declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp or outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp, and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord had commanded Moses. The law was upheld. The law was upheld. That's, that's one where God didn't pass over. It's upheld when it's executed, when its penalties are enforced. And so every other attempt to establish the law brings it down. Every other attempt to put it forward lowers it. Every other attempt ultimately dishonors it. What Paul's saying here is the same thing that Jesus said. That it's all going to be upheld. You're not going to divide it. You're not going to pull it apart. You're not going to pick through it. But every jot and every tittle, every smallest stroke of the pen it has to be fulfilled it has to be upheld and what Paul's saying here is that by faith it is upheld by faith not by partnership between you and God not by Christ doing part of it and you doing part of it. Not by Him doing ceremonial works and you doing moral works. Not by, not by some sort of division in some way. The only way that all of it is upheld is by faith alone. By sola fide. It's the only true system. It's the only true way. 
It's the only way of salvation. So Luther was justified. This is exactly what Paul was teaching. This is exactly what the context says. It is what makes it clear. That this has always been God's design, always been God's plan. That if you approach Him, if you bring Him anything in your hand, you commend to Him any reason why you think that He should accept you other than Christ, then you bring what is insufficient. It can be one work. It can be ten works. It can be ten years of works. It can be the entire law. It might as well all be the same. Because one thing added to faith, and you lose faith. It's our call to you today that if you're here and you've been imagining that God wants you, that God desires you, that God is pleased with you because of how you act, because of how you behave, hear the message of the cross. All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. And fall short of God's glory. But they're justified. They're declared right before God. Not on the basis of what they do. Not on the basis of how you act. But because a Savior gave Himself. To fully satisfy the punishment God demanded for you. He gave Himself. And so that everyone who believes in Him. Might not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. The one that Luther understood the one on which the church rises and falls, and the one that will determine your eternal destiny. If you believe, Christ will save you. If you hope in yourself, He'll not. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this passage, for this word. We understand that it is our place to be praising and not boasting. We understand that it is our stance not to be self-congratulatory, but self-renouncing. For there's nothing in our hand that we bring but simply to the cross of Christ that we cling. It's simply His gracious work, His love, which is beyond explanation, which has purchased us And so all glory goes to Him. May His name be praised in our hearts and in our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.